namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sangam Namasami We've come here from very busy lives full of attachments, distractions, stress, solving problems, managing relationships, experiencing the joys, the sorrows, the pleasures and pains of human life. And as we sit here together in this sacred space that has held prayers in it for decades probably, we begin to taste a little bit of the silence that resides within us just by stopping. It takes a couple of days, it takes three days usually to decompress. It does seem like because we're in this old church, this hallowed space, that it hastens our ability to quieten the mind and to come to a place of reflection and calm. Still, we're getting dragged into the future with expectations or dreaming about the present, the past, worrying, distracted, in more subtle ways. Even though we're sitting still, hour after hour and walking slowly back and forth, the mind does seem to continue to catapult and tumble endlessly, like a tumble dryer. And it does that because that's our habit. It's not a personal thing. It's just this is the condition that we're in as human beings. We have five faculties five sense gates, and the mind. So these five aggregates of experience that arise at the eye door, the speech door, the nose, the ears, our ability to feel things through touching and through thoughts, the mind working away, it's like a thought factory full of ideas, perturbations of the mind, mental formations, churning and getting produced constantly. We don't have any control over that. Even if we train ourselves, we may study very hard, go to school and earn degrees, PhDs, MDs, other kinds of Ds, <laughs> ODs, <laughs> getting overdosed 
on facts and knowledge, that does not give us the governance over our minds. We're still not able to control this ceaseless production of thoughts. So when we come here and we stop physically, why? In all this silence, there's this constant, endless activity going on inside of us. And we long for the mind to be silent. So if we pick an object like the breath or the body or the sound of silence, or it could be an image, an internal image that we imagine in the mind, that we focus on, and we put all our concentration on that object with a lot of continuity and perseverance, we can go into a tranquility of the mind. And with that kind of a powerful mind, we can subdue those mental formations. That's the power of samatha practice, the yogic yoking together the faculties of the mind so that we exclude all the visual, oral, taste, and tactile sensations from distracting us. And we stop the thinking mind, excluding all of those interruptions, interferences, to be so single-minded on one point. And that brings a tremendous stillness in the mind. Through tranquility, we can experience a lot of bliss. In this particular training, we're encouraging contemplation and reflection, which will help us to grow wise. Because even if the mind, through the force of jhanic intensity, we cannot uproot that restlessness, those hindrances based on lifetimes of habit and ignorance. We can subdue them, but it's temporary. If we go back out into the world, we can no longer subdue these perturbations. This suffering that we are all subjected to. Back in the world, if you walk down the street at a very slow pace, creeping along, then it will be impossible for you to function in your life. If you spend hours and hours a day just sitting and focusing on your breath at the tip of your nostrils so that you can preserve this intense tranquility in the mind, you become so attached to that serenity. You become very attached to these perfect conditions where nothing will interfere and interrupt your state of calm. It will be impossible for you to support yourself, your loved ones, hold down a job and carry out your responsibilities. You'll have to quit everything, abandon the world, and go live in a cave. But there will be no such calm and peace living in the world. We need a practice that gives us the tools to surmount the fluctuations and wildness of this 
ignorant mind. In the middle of daily life, we cannot organize our lives for there to be perfect conditions all the time. It's beyond our control. There will always be something new happening. Either we will get sick or someone else will get sick. There will be some kind of disappointment. We will meet somebody who will be nasty. Or we will be living with somebody that's hard to live with. Or we will find things in ourselves that we cannot tolerate. We will have memories arising, bothering us, enervating us, bringing up states of despair and depression. We will remember terrible things that we've done and feel guilty. Or we'll be very anxious and panicky about things that we have to do in the future and live in trepidation and stress at the thought of having to fulfill those responsibilities. Or we will experience pleasures and have greedy mind states wishing that those pleasures never ended always thinking about those pleasant experiences, wanting to see that wonderful person, wanting to visit that exotic place, or wanting to own that new iPod, which we can't afford, or improve our skills and study more and more so that we can be better people. We want to train to be a doctor, something noble nonetheless, but it causes stress because we have to work so hard. The outside world is, is tricky. It's very difficult to balance all these pressures and the internal pressures. We get very tired. So when we use the tools of this practice to equip ourselves to deal with imperfect conditions, with the changes that life will bring, then we can learn to let go our attachment to things being a certain way, to our minds being a certain way, our bodies being a certain way. So the Buddha's instruction is for us to develop sila, samadhi, and panya. Most of us love the samadhi bit. We love the blissful feelings, but you know, they don't last. And it would be nice to leave this retreat with some strength under your belts that will carry you through the tumults and turbulence of daily life. And I promise you that if you train in this threefold training of virtue or precepts, concentrating the mind, and reflecting wisely on every aspect of your experience. When you leave here, you will have tools that will help you to live with a greater sense of joy and equilibrium, no matter what happens. I've chosen a little verse which gives a simile that will help us to think how we 
can practice this threefold training when we're here as well as when we leave. We should try to be like a vessel to hold water, like a seed to be planted in the ground. And we should avoid the three mistakes. The three mistakes I will point out. Listening attentively, thoughtfully, and mindfully. Make your minds like a vessel that's uncorruptible. How do we do that? When the Buddha was teaching his young son Rahula, who was seven years old, he held a cup in his hand and he turned it upside down. The meaning of this symbol was that if a cup is held upside down, it cannot hold any water. So when the mind is upside down, that means that it cannot hold attention. We cannot be thoughtful. That doesn't mean full of thinking. But that we cannot be reflective. We cannot be aware. If we cannot pay attention and if we're not mindful, we're not observing and understanding the origin of our suffering and the cessation of our suffering moment by moment, then it's like turning the mind the way you would turn a cup upside down, unable to hold our attention. Do you see? So just as a cup doesn't hold water when it's upside down, so a mind that is not closely following the object, whether you're listening to the sound of silence or watching your breath, if you're thinking here and there, then you cannot hold the space. What is it that holds the space in this church, in this temple? It is these four walls. It's like a cup, like a giant cup. We sit inside this space and we are protected. In the same way, when we sit with a concentrated mind, we create a sphere of protection around ourselves. And if that cup is filthy and dirty, or if there's poison in the water, then what is the nature of that water? It's polluted, it's corrupted. In the same way, if we are not holding precepts, if our minds are full of views and prejudices, wrong views about the Dhamma, about the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, or wrong views about karma and its results, or wrong views about ourselves, that we are a self, permanent, solid, and in control. That's wrong view. Then we will not be able to understand this teaching because the space that we're holding is filled with this tainted way of seeing. There are two ways of seeing, a perfect way and a false way. The false way is full of wrong views. In order to be able to practice this teaching, we have to practice virtue. Because through virtue and keeping precepts, we purify the mind. We purify our speech and our action, but that affects the state of our mind. Otherwise, our mind will be corrupted. Corrupted by what? 
by lying, by betraying other people, by causing harm to ourselves and others. Then as soon as you sit down in the space of the temple of your heart, those corruptions, those pollutants of our negative acts, our negative speech and our negative thoughts will stain our ability to abide in a pure space. Then we can never reach that state that will empty the mind of all defilement. Because that's the pollution of the mind, the poisons that we're holding corrupt us. Do you see that? So that's why it is very, very important for us to keep precepts. Now, if that cup that he was holding were broken, then in the same way, this mind that we have is easily shattered. Our ability to understand wisdom is easily shattered because we do not have the perseverance, the steadfastness, the commitment to continue to persevere. And so we may be able to hold this space for a little while, but then we give up. We give up our precepts, we give up our practice, and we go back to the delights of the world. What use is that? So if we want to practice this teaching, we have to follow this threefold training. That is, the cup should be held upright. We have to hold the mind in the right way. We have to hold the object in the right way. We have to practice perfect seeing. Perfect seeing is not distorted by thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, dreams about the present. Memories, wrong views about ourselves, wrong belief in the ego. I'm a good person and I'm a bad person. Who is, who is thinking? Who is it? We have to be able to listen with an empty mind. An empty mind meaning not a stupid mind, but with that sense of wisdom that is pure and undefiled. At the same time, these three things arise together. They're not separate. Like first I do this, then I do this, then. The threefold training, it's a gradual training. It arises together. At the same time that we are holding the space, we are keeping the purity of the mind. We're preventing evil thoughts from arising. And the evil thoughts or the negative thoughts that are already there, the impure liquid that's in the cup, we empty it. We keep emptying the mind. It's not something that we do just at the beginning of our meditation. We have to do it constantly. Every single sitting. What are you doing? What are we holding in the mind? Every time you notice thought arising, you have to sweep it away. It's not enough to determine at the beginning of the retreat, is it? I'm not going to think. Because time and again, the thoughts will keep coming over and over. And we have to be so persevering to work with those thoughts. What happens when there's fear? Every time we feel afraid, we can't give in to that fear. We can't believe in it. We have to try to bring up thoughts of non-fear. 
if we're feeling ill will, we have to bring up the sign of loving kindness. So those are two kinds of effort right there. Working with unwholesomeness, emptying the filthy water from the cup, so that that cup can be a worthy vessel to hold the wisdom that will arise in the mind. If we want to sit in this space and have it be a sacred place, what use is it if we're sitting here with thoughts of greed? Oh, I'd love to have that nice dessert that we had at lunch. Or remembering somebody in your life that you are upset with. That does not allow us to tune in to the pure vibration, the pure energy that is our true nature, is constantly accessible to us from within the depths of our own goodness. Our Buddha nature is ready to set that vibration going for us and make this a holy place. But it's not by cultivating fearful thoughts, hateful thoughts, greedy thoughts, or deluded thoughts. It's by cultivating non-thinking. That empty mind that is absolutely present, pure presence, constantly abiding in pure presence. So that takes a lot of work. We have to keep emptying, just like we have to keep doing the dishes. We have to keep washing our robes. We have to keep shaving our heads. The hair grows back. When we shave our heads once, that doesn't mean that's it. Now I'm a nun, so I'm pure forever. To live the holy life, we have to shave constantly. And that doesn't mean that the, the mind is pure. It means we only look pure. <laughs> Would you like to have a little electrode attached and have it up on a screen what you're thinking, oh no. <laughs> but that's our condition. And the third thing is, if the cup is cracked, that crack means that the cup leaks. So our minds also leak out that goodness when we give up our practice. What does giving up our practice mean? It means not being committed to focusing and concentrating our energy on the work of silencing the formations in the mind, silencing the distraction, the anxiety, the panic, the fear, and coming back to that pure presence. But it also means we create those cracks when we give up our precepts, when we allow ourselves to think, act, or speak in unwholesome ways then our vessel becomes very weak. We shatter it. It's frail. We are frail. We have spent so many lifetimes. So if you don't believe in many lifetimes, at least this whole lifetime, you can see from the way it is when you sit down and close your eyes, how much confusion, how much wilderness there is in the mind, how hard it is to find your way through that forest of thoughts, the bramble, the thorns, they shred us, these thoughts. But if we are keeping precepts, it doesn't mean just panatipata, veramnesi, kapata, 
I undertake the training not to kill any living thing. We have to do that constantly. It means not to kill our sila, our virtue, moment by moment by harboring evil thoughts. That's a form of harmfulness. It's a form of killing. We execute ourselves. Every time we allow ourselves to take refuge in our fear, what are we doing? We're not in the present moment. So we have cut off that goodness and we're choking ourselves on samsara. So to keep precepts is very subtle. It's a very deep teaching. It means sealing up the cracks constantly, moment by moment. It's almost like there's a leak in our mental conditioning. So we make a commitment to constantly fill in those cracks. Many years ago, I was given a beautiful Buddha by Ajahn Suchito. It's from Burma, so it's particularly precious to me because I was first ordained in Burma. And I was so grateful to him for giving me this Buddha, even though it was cracked. I took it as a symbol that this is the kind of work that I have to commit myself to, sealing up the cracks in my own heart. And there are so many. So in how many ways are we cracked? In how many ways are we broken? How much trauma have we experienced? How much trauma are we going to experience? We don't have to think about that. But I made a commitment that I would repair this beautiful Buddha. So I did that. I filled him in with wood filler. And then I found a crayon and rubbed the crayon into the wood so that perceptually, visibly, you couldn't really see the crack anymore. I was so proud of myself. There arose conceit, which is itself a crack. You see? It's so subtle. Well, after some time, this Buddha cracked again. Because the wood, with age, it does continue to crack. But the cracks are a sign of strength. Then I began to realize the teaching in this. The first teaching is that the cracks mean we're getting stronger. Because we do get beaten down by life, but we keep going. And we can fill in that brokenness by practicing. To this day, I don't fill him in that much anymore. I just look at him and I see the crack and I fill it in with my mind. It doesn't bother me anymore. I used to be obsessed with filling in that crack and making him look like a brand new Buddha. But just like me, I'll never look brand new because I'm old. So old means there's wrinkles, there's cracks, there's folds, there's bulges, there's spots, there's all kinds of things that happen. When I have the burning from the bhikkhuni ordination, at first I was so thrilled with these burns, these spots, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And then even that can be a source of pride. You know how liver spots are, they just appear. Then I noticed this other spot and I thought, how come I can be proud about those spots and not about the other spot? <laughs>
This body is such a teaching. It never stops. So to keep precepts means that we have to continue to seal up the cracks in our hearts. Never mind the exterior cracks. We will never make the body beautiful. You can keep looking in the mirror and trying to fix it up as much as you want. But it's never going to stay the way you want it, is it? But what kind of beauty really impresses us? What is the beauty that we love? Is kindness, loving kindness, unconditional love. So if we make ourselves a vessel that can hold that kind of forgiveness that's unshatterable, no matter what kind of conditions we have to face, no matter what kind of misery or suffering life brings to us, we're able to keep bringing up a sense of blessing. We keep filling in the cracks and not allowing our minds to be dragged down and degraded by that misery then we can keep such a refined level of purity as to live in holiness. Even though we may wear the loveliest things, or, or look beautiful, or look young again, it'll never last. Or we may shave our heads and wear a robe and look so pristine. If our hearts are soiled by impure thoughts, if our speech and action are insensitive, crude, unkind, and harmful, then we have not understood this teaching and this training. So we can concentrate the minds. We can make that cup solid enough to hold water. But what's also important is that the water be pure and that the cup not get cracked. And if it cracks, we have to work at filling in the crack, not give in to our frailty and our weakness, even if we might not be able to meditate that well. So we crack. But when you have courage and faith, you will do anything. You will make the sacrifice and the commitment that will go through any obstacle. You'll patch yourself back together that you can be that kind of a strong vessel to hold a pure devotion, the devotion to the practice, to the teaching. So trying to understand and see the comparison, my father's love and devotion, the way he loved my mother was unfathomable. This was his practice. He was totally one-pointed. There was no obstacle too great. Her doctors and his doctors marveled at his fortitude and strength. This is a karmic predicament. What kind of predicament are you faced with? All of us have baggage. Some of us have light baggage, heavy baggage, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, 
trying to work with it with a sense of commitment, determination to be strong, to bring up a sense of gratitude, to keep going. If it's worthy, worthy of your love and devotion, do it against all odds. Keep patching yourself together again, filling in the cracks, because that creates a holiness around you that will support you. Unconditional love has a mystery in it that will hold you up. It feeds and nourishes us mysteriously and helps us endure the fire. Even the, the little fires of physical burning are nothing compared to the fire of this spiritual work that we do to make ourselves whole from within to purify our minds. Let go your fear moment by moment. Don't think about the future moments, only the fear that you feel in this breath, this listening today, now. Tomorrow will take care of itself. So stay present and continually emptying the mind. Be present. Then when we reach the end of our life, we will feel such a peace, such a level of fulfillment, such an ability to smile, to rejoice, and to be ready for the next moment. Because that death consciousness is another beginning. And it's a mystery. This life, you might think that this life is where it's at. That's it. But there is something beyond this. Something that we are preparing for. Our journey is long and we're rehearsing. This realm, this is like a rehearsal. We have a lot of work to do. And we have the joy of this kind of teaching and these instructions to follow. So just take little, little sips at a time. Just die to this moment. Die and be reborn in the new moment. Fresh, with a clear mind, a strong vessel. And when those cracks appear, just fill them in with your mind's wholesome intention. That's enough. Wisdom, working side by side, with that pure intention to keep precepts. That's the training. The container itself, the whole spirit of that action brings us to the river from which we are able to drink this unconditional love. Wisdom and compassion must work together inside of us to be able to free ourselves from suffering once and for all.